Well, hey. what's up, brother? Hey, Dylan. How's it going, bro? Having a dream, dude. Excited to uh, excited to rip here, man. Um, I guess we can first start off for listeners like who who don't know Dylan Leclaire, the man. Um, what you know? Uh, what what's your background? How'd you get into Bitcoin? Uh, what do you what do you do exactly? All that kind of high level thing. Yeah, man. So, I mean, for those who don't know, um, I'm sure probably a lot of the people, the listeners do. Um, we started just talking, I think, over Twitter DMs. What in March? February, something like that. Um, you had 2,000 yeah, followers. I think you had like eight or something. Uh, <laughs> and I think, yeah, we. I just saw, I think Preston Fish retweeted one of your things. And um, at that point, uh, I think February, March, I had just started working for Bitcoin Magazine. Um, I, you know, I guess just to go a little into my background, like I uh, found Bitcoin in 2018-ish for the first time and didn't really do any digging. I mean, I was a junior in, in, in high school. Um, but I think just always being a numbers guy, I went to like the financial uh, side of things, just um, didn't love science. I was like, all right, screw it. Like I'll, uh, I'll learn finance, learn economics, or like, you know, try to try to make it from a business lens. I like solving problems. Um, I went to school just in my hometown state business um, for a year. And I mean, I love school. <laughs> it was the environment's awesome. The social scene is great. Uh, you're living it right now. I'm, I'm living it right now. Uh, it's awesome. But the academic side of things left a lot to be desired. Um, you, funny enough, like we kind of took this like quite a similar path in terms of like both realizing that and the value prop of uh, boomers teaching Keynesian economics, um, just like an outdated, uh, you know, theory or, you know, an outdated just like frame of thinking. Um, and so just like was ripping Twitter, I've been, you know, been using Twitter probably too much for the last 18 months. Um, just like, you know, first, just not even really sharing my thoughts, but just learning behind the scenes um, from like so many smart people and like just consuming all the content. Um, and that kind of changed in, in March when I, or February, March when I joined VM and, and started just doing some of their media stuff um, and just kind of slowly transitioned from doing media to doing some sort of content news aggregation coverage to now um, my current kind of job is uh, we have a, a newsletter called or like a yeah i guess a newsletter called uh deep dive which is you know we cover like macro on-chain analytics and uh like derivatives um, just everything that's happening so like i lead that off um with my boy uh sam rule who's who's killing it um yeah i mean basically just kind of look at what's happening in the bitcoin market and just try to try to document its, its rise and so i mean it's it's a blast we, we just get to hang out all day and and share our thoughts and we text for the most part every day so you know i i can't complain i'm definitely living living the dream yeah for sure um you know it's, it's been really cool to see you blow up as well um you know i think uh when once you started you now kind of curating your twitter and you kind of really turned it into this like data feed then you just blew up man and it's it's been really awesome to see that that recognition uh and you know by the end of the cycle i'm, I'm no doubt in my mind you'll be at to 300k at least at a, at a very minimum so uh, keep up the great work man um you know one one thing you were Appreciate touching it. on that was you're just talking about your newsletter for me i found that the newsletter has been a really good way to kind of articulate my thoughts and kind of have this diary almost where i can go back and see what my thought process was at you know any different time in the market going back over since i started it i think at the the end of april or the beginning of may um, you actually do it daily. So I'm curious, do you, do you go back ever and like relook at, at your newsletters and kind of see 
what your thought process was because I know I've gone back on a few of mine before and like cringed out and been like, oh man, like this is this is pretty bad. And then you know you you learn through that. Um, you know you look at you know uh, was my thought process similar to the situation that we're in now when the market structure is similar, and then kind of understand you know perhaps some of your like psychological biases and stuff. But uh, do you notice any of that? Yeah. So I mean, I guess I would say first to preface like. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a perma, I'm a perma Bitcoin bull that roots for the price to go down essentially. Um, and obviously can't lose cause it's when number go up, it's, it's great. But, um, I, I have a, like the, the, the deep dive newsletter, um, Bitcoin magazines team in general, for the most part, like share this view, um, and, and my kind of thesis, um, about Bitcoin is that it's the, the best form of money the world has ever seen. It's the, and, and will be the dominant uh, digital monetary proof of work network, and that essentially it's reached a critical mass where it's already won. Um, and so just being like, we, we examine everything from the deep dive with that long-term thesis. Uh, and then we kind of zoom in on like, you know, cycle to cycle, month to month, week to week, and sometimes day to day uh, time frame. be like, here's news, here's what it could mean. Or like, here's, uh, you know, for example, like here's the derivative market and everybody's short and funding is negative. And then here's spot like in July, like I wanted, I was just uh, looking through the, those posts like I said um, we're actually transitioning to Substack, which I'm really excited about. It's just much more of a, a clean platform and easy to access. And uh, I think it'll be in that benefit. But I was just looking through that uh, kind of my my day to day like diary, like you're saying. And it was like July 22nd. And it was like we wrote uh, a dichotomy emerging Bitcoin spot. And we were showing a liquid supply change and how there was a massive accumulation, a reaccumulation occurring. And that how, you know, the derivative market was more bearish than it's ever been. And that the futures, uh, the futures yield, uh, you know, at one month, three month annualized yield was zero or negative. And so it was like, hey, like, you know, this is, yeah, again, like we're not, we've never said sell your Bitcoin, but we'll, we'll give just kind of like a probabilistic view on things like, hey, you know, potentially ex explosive short squeeze or like, hey, the derivative market's a little bit over levered, uh, you know, so, you know, maybe don't sell the farm and, and ape into a leverage position here. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all kind of, you know, constructed with that, with that long-term thesis of, of Bitcoin is going to eat the world more or less. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, when you're talking about like the basis of your summer, I remember like CL made a post and he was like, if you bought Bitcoin every time the basis went negative, I mean, you'd be in pretty damn good shape. Um, I think like, when, when we talk about funding, a lot of times people need to understand it's all like in context, right? Like we had positive funding the whole beginning of the year, but it's usually when funding diverges from price. So either A, as you talked about that, I mean, what me, me and you were like riffing on about this at the time, we we're like, oh, there's, we're going to get a big short squeeze, right? Because you had funding going negative as open interest as a percentage of market cap was really rising. Right. And then price was going the opposite direction. So essentially all these traders were fading the rally. So fading like the spot market on leverage. Um, and, and you just saw more and more contracts coming into the system. Um, and then another like another tool, too. I don't know if you use this is the, the leverage ratio on Glassnode. Uh, it's not it's not perfect, but, you know, it kind of can give you a good little ballpark, essentially, uh, of like how collateralized these traders are. Right. Um, and then also like. Uh, this is something I've seen you put in your writing before. It's just 
the percentage of the collateral that's either crypto or uh, stablecoin margined. And so, um, you know, when, when you have a lot of shorts that are margined with, um, you know, stable coins, then you're a lot more susceptible uh, to a squeeze. Do, do you want to speak on that? Cause I know, I know you wrote like a whole piece on this. I'll kind of let you graph for a minute. Yeah. So I think, I think first when, when people like a lot of, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there about derivatives um, and just like, you know, from the outside in, if you don't know anything about, you know, financial markets or even like, and I, again, I don't know if this is satire, but like Michael Burry last night being like, do Bitcoin shorts need to be collateralized? Like essentially saying that, like Michael Burry, like Wall Street legendary investor, you know, bought credit default swaps on the system. And he's like, if it was satire, then fair play, you know, GG, you got everybody. But if if it wasn't, then this man doesn't understand the derivative markets either. So like, it's fine, don't feel bad. Um, but the, I think the, the first thing that I hear a lot of people are confused is like derivatives are manipulation. And it's like, no, it's not. Derivatives are just layered bets on a directional, uh, you know, price prediction for Bitcoin. Um, and they can, it's essentially, you know, they can for a little bit whipsaw price or, or suppress price or bet on it to, you know, to go in a certain way. But ultimately with a derivative, you have to, you enter a position, you have to exit. With spot, I buy spot. You're, you're shorting fiat um, when you're buying spot Bitcoin and you never have to cover. But with, with cover as in you have to buy back your short, you have to sell that position. Um, but with a derivative, you, you enter, you always have to exit. So, so it, you know, that, that open interest, that trade always has to come back in. And so, you know, you'll see like a, a lot of explosive moves and, and people will be like, this is manipulation when in reality, it's an imbalance. It's a dislocation that's correcting in real time. And it's driven by the spot dynamics. So that I, I think that's just like the first thing um, when you're talking about uh, leverage in the system and how it's collateralized. I think that's a thing that a lot of people don't understand. Like, you know, talking head on CNBC about the Bitcoin price, they don't look at this data or, or understand it, um, but it has a big impact. So earlier in the market cycle, this in 2021, Bitcoin's going parabolic. It was at $10,000 in November, October, you know, that purgatory of nine to 10 to 11 K for the whole entire summer of 2020. We go parabolic, break all time highs, Bitcoin's ripping, everybody's lever levering up and it works. You can lever up because there was such a, the, an influx of capital to, to push up that spot side of things. So if you're levered long, you're just riding the tidal wave of spot spot inflows of, of, of capital. Um, but towards that that top point um, with the top, you know, the market top, and I think this is psychological as well, coming when the, with the Coinbase IPO on April 14th, you saw a, a growing percent of that open interest was Bitcoin or crypto more on, with the markets more broadly. But if we're just focusing on Bitcoin markets, just as like, a representation and also the biggest driver of, of crypto, um, an increasing amount of Bitcoin open interest was margin or collateralized with Bitcoin. So there's a convexity there on the downside where if your your position's losing value as the market draws down, well, your collateral is also shrinking in value. So your liquidation price is moving up. And so this this is obviously, uh, there's a there's a convexity there that doesn't favor bulls, um, but Bitcoin is, is, is easy collateral in the ecosystem because that was what the, the first exchange, like futures exchanges, perpetual swap contracts were built on. Like there was no stable coins. And even then, like just tether so big because there was, there was a big demand for this dollar collateral that didn't decrease in unwind and leverage uh, during a downturn. And so um, the, the top of the market at April 14th, we saw like 70% of the derivative market was collateralized with Bitcoin. Um, and since then, um, we've seen just a, a pretty massive reduction in, in terms of open interest with Bitcoin. And you're seeing thing now 
you know, 55% of that market is, is stablecoin collateralized. So uh, it's the opposite dynamic where uh, during a during a uh, drawdown, your your collateral is not decreasing in value. But during a uh, if you short with with dollars, if you short Bitcoin in the derivative market with dollars, well, as the Bitcoin price pumps, you have to increasingly re over collateralize to to remain solvent. Um, and so that's what you know led to that huge short squeeze uh, in the end of July. We saw like the Binance contract go from thirty two thousand to forty eight thousand in the, the, the most volume uh, uh, um, market in, in crypto went, went you know, up $16,000 in an hour uh, because of the massive amount of stablecoin uh, tether, like, you know, tether short. So like, you know, tether was actually pumping the market because it was being artificially suppressed, which is kind of funny for the bears. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are just some of the dynamics that, you know, are happening under the hood uh, that really kind of change what, what, you know, the market outlook is looking like. Yeah, I think... Um... The two of us both learned a lot over the summer because I think both of us got, uh, for, for better or for worse, it was, you know, our first real kind of uh, Bitcoin hype cycle. And so I think to an extent, both of us kind of got caught up a bit in the froth. And um, I think over the summer, we really kind of hunkered down and, and um, you know, tried to understand the market better and, and be a lot more objective. And so I think some of these things that we now recognize were perhaps topping signals um, from earlier this year. I think this time around, We'll be able to recognize some of these things and kind of approach it from you know a more level-headed standpoint what are some of the other things you know looking back obviously um for for some people may say this is cope but you know what what are some of the the things that you look at now that you're like oh if i knew this back then then i probably would have been would, would have been more bearish um for me like from an on-chain perspective the first thing that obviously comes to mind is the liquid supply shock ratio um, that was a huge leading indicator of, of the drawdown in May. Um, you saw that tick down pretty heavily right before uh, about a week or two before we started moving down. Um, and that wasn't created. I don't think I made that until like July, right around July 4th, actually. Um, and then also the, the exchange flows. You started to see like insane amounts of coins moving to exchanges um, right before then as well like the, the record daily inflow of coins to exchanges right before we dumped. So uh, what are, what are some of the things that perhaps you're, you're going to be looking at now to, to indicate perhaps you were, we're getting a bit frothy that you learned from earlier this year? Yeah. So one of the things that like, we were really uh, excited about uh, in, I think the early months of 2021 was that uh, was the contango, the famous contango, um, which was, you know, uh, which is the yield you can arbitrage or capture um, from selling futures contract in a you know date into the future and, and buying spot Bitcoin. Um, so Bitcoin is a futures market just like oil does, just like gold does, just like uh, corn or any really commodity with a supply chain. Um, and so you know I can buy the right to uh, Bitcoin in December 2022, and I could do that in in February. Um, and so this the the basis on this um, just really really blew out. Um, and so what you saw was. You know, I think that this basis went to 48%. Uh, so like you could you could get an annualized return of 48% uh, in mid-April from selling future and buying the spot. And I think at one point, Bitcoin futures hit like 88,000 or something, um, which is really insane. And so, you know, I, that was, uh, you know, that had me feeling bullish. But I think when you're hitting those sort of yields uh, with Bitcoin uh, as a, like, you know, uh, a trillion dollar asset, what it, what it really meant was that there wasn't that spot bid coming in. Um, there, everybody that wanted to kind of capture this trade 
had already had already captured it, had already executed this market neutral trade, which is buy spot sell futures. And so once you make that trade, you're you know you can no, you can't do it again. And so um, that to me, you know, if we see a sustained like I think twenty percent, you know, annualized cash and carry yields are extremely extremely bullish because you're just telling everybody in TradFi and the and Wall Street, hey, figure out a way to come in here and take advantage of this. And and you know we can talk about the the potential ETF, but the one reason I think the CME thing is bullish is because uh, there's essentially going to be a ton of boomer capital that doesn't care and just buys the product, even though it'll probably underperform Bitcoin and have some some fees, and they'll just bid they'll just bid up the CME uh, the the CME futures price, um, which will which will you know increase that relative to spot and it'll encourage um, you know people to come in and, and take advantage of this risk free uh, rate and and when they have to do that they have to buy spot so it's like an indirect um, kind of a indirectly leads to more spot capital coming in theoretically, um, which is, you know, kind of why I'd, I'd be bullish on that if it, if, and when it probably comes. But I think just, you know, if you're looking at the leverage in the system and you really see these, the futures basis blow out again, like, again, I'm a perma bull and it's going to be very, very challenging to part with like any of my bag um, and, you know, at a potential top, it's going to be very challenging. And like, I don't know if I'll do it. I rather would just leverage long uh, with bottoms for the most part, not like, in a degenerate way, but, you know, just increase leverage a little bit on bottoms instead of trying to time tops. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people probably got burned in 2017, but, you know, if we see that basis really, really blow out and, you know, especially if crypto margin, Bitcoin margin futures increase relative to, to dollar margin, then, you know, it'll be like, okay, well, maybe we, we do need to correct here, you know, eliminate some imbalance and, uh, you know, wipe out the excess. Yeah, totally. And like one thing you mentioned was, if we get like a futures-based ETF, it's going to bid up the CME curve. Whereas earlier this yeah. year, you saw CME was completely falling behind all the other overseas, uh, you know, based exchanges. And we're talking about like Deribit, Binance, FTX. Um, so I think we're w- one thing that's interesting is if we can get the CME curve to be bid up the way that the other exchanges were earlier this year, it's going to unlock this. US-based capital where earlier this year they couldn't really get access to this cash and carry trade because it was over via these overseas exchanges, which due to regulatory restrictions, they can't access. So, you know, obviously the way Bitcoin is, you know, it's, it's global. So we're going to still benefit if people overseas are taking advantage of the cash and carry trade and driving capital into spot. But I, I still think that um, it, it's just an interesting note that you're going to have now, um, you know, all these U.S. institutions or, or, you know, hedge funds that are now able to access this this cash and carry trade that weren't necessarily um, earlier this year. Yeah, I mean, so like, what did you, what did we see early in, in January or like even before that December with with GBTC, which was like at the time basically the only way to access any sort of, um, you know, reliable Bitcoin exposure for like from the street side of things. I mean, there's, you know there's some funds or, you know, like there's Genesis and, and uh, BlockFi. And like, if you're a crypto hedge fund, which I think has its own kind of regulatory requirements compared to like a macro fund, um, you can just go buy spot Bitcoin with a custodian, but you know, that it's kind of, you had to jump through a lot of hoops still surprisingly. Um, so it was like, all right, grayscale um, micro strategy wasn't even big yet there. They weren't even, they weren't leveraged long their entire balance sheet <laughs> yet. Um, they just had a little bit of exposure. Um, we saw more and more miners come into the market. So like, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't real, and those aren't like, you know, tethered one-to-one with Bitcoin. So GBTC was it. And so you saw a bunch of these macro guys because GBTC is a trust and trades in the secondary market, 
you saw that trade at a premium to net asset value. So all this capital that does, I, I promise you, these guys, like most of them didn't, or at least didn't at the time uh, care about Bitcoin. They just cared about the yield. And so they're like, all right, like I can buy GBTC from Grayscale. I can bring $100 to Grayscale. They'll mint me $100 of GBTC that's locked up for six months. And right now it's worth $135 in the secondary market. And so like every single fund, especially at year end, came to do this trade just to mark up their books or to capture this you know, risk-free trade. Um, and all of the unlocks came at the same time. And so you saw like that completely flood out the market. But the entire time, like you have GBTC as kind of this like spot-like instrument, not really, but that most funds can access. Um, you know, you see a lot of banking system uh, and investment banks that are like have GBTC shares. Macroscope on Twitter is fire with the SEC announcements. Um, you always see those coming in like that, you know, we have GBTC, but CME was always the, the, the curve was flat. So there was no way to come in, um, you know, capture any of this yield after GBTC's premium went to a discount. There was just no kind of market neutral way to, to get access the trillions of dollars in U.S. Pub, public capital markets. Like there's so much money out there that people don't even people can't even fathom. And so now if we see CME trade at 10, 15 percent, even like a five, seven percent basis, um, you know, cause like it was still, it was pretty, it was pretty flat while Deribit, FTX, all these Binance were, were like 20, 30% in the beginning of the year. Um, so if we see that consistent basis, then you can actually come in and do the trade with GBTC. You can do the trade with spot Bitcoin as, as it becomes more and more acceptable. And so I, you know, I'm pretty bullish on the, on the ETF for sure. Sure. Yeah. What are the things that like, when you first wake up, what do you check? Uh, I kind of have like a little checklist almost mentally that I go through and, um, you know, I'll look at like Coinalize, SKU, uh, you know, Glassnode um, and TradingView just for levels. You know, what, what are some of the things do you do you wake up and check the news or? Yeah, I probably check Twitter first um, just to see what people are buzzing about. Um, well, I'll check. I'll, I'll probably, you know, if talking about Bitcoin, I'll probably check the price. <laughs> just, you know, I just, you know, see what's happening and. For much of the summer, it was just like, you know, I think it's exciting because the next couple of weeks or months or whenever the all-time high pops, I, I think sooner than later, um, you wake up and you have zero idea what the price is going to be. Like it could gap up. Like the most exciting time was like in in the, the late December, January, like when you'd wake up and the price is 21000 and, and when you went to bed and it's 24, you're like, holy it's like Christmas like, Eve as a kid, you know, you get that like butterfly feeling before you go to bed because, you know, in the morning. And you can literally... You can literally tweet out hashtag Bitcoin, like you'll get like an infinite amount of likes because everybody's just buzzing. Like that, that's definitely fun. So I would say when I wake up, I I check Twitter, I check the price, and then I get get to my desk and I'll I'll just kind of work through the same kind of things. Um, check Glassnode, which is like such an awesome software. Not like the on-chain. They also they're adding all this derivative stuff. Like I think the the on-chain trends, like we're looking at short-term stuff, like exchange balances or you know. Maybe coin day is destroyed if someone, you know, some old holder, you know, transferred a lot of the stuff, but also like the cyclical long trends of like, you know, long-term holders, what are they doing? I think, you know, how we're, how we've seen recently kind of with long-term holders just continuing to, to be straight to the right up, we're in all-time highs breaking every day, um, except for, you know, a little bit yesterday, but, you know, we'll see if that, that trend continues, but, you know, we're seeing like bear market hodler kind of dynamics or like accumulation, maybe not bear market, but accumulation dynamics that you see during consolidation that you see during bear markets and bull market price action, which is like, you know, exciting um, because, it, you know, I think 
the the you know reflexive part of this bull market is is not even started and i don't think it's particularly that close to starting at least i, I hope not for the for the price's sake so um yeah it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty nuts but i just kind of run through that same you know glass notes queue uh trading view um i'll check i'll check the mining uh prices and the you know the s p the macro stuff see what maybe the 10 years at but you know i i less and less care about that you know like the whole inflation stagflation what cpi is what the jerome powell's gonna say on a random wednesday like you know, when when you're just long Bitcoin with a majority or maybe over 100% of your net worth, then, you know, we'll, we know where this is going. Yeah, totally. Why don't you talk a little bit about on-chain? Um, so, you know, like, I won't start babbling because my listeners have just hear me talk, you know, every single week about my thoughts. Babble, but- bro. <laughs> no, no, I want to I hear from you, A, about like this new metric that you created. Um, so your pin tweet about, you know, the, the long-term holder, short-term holder uh, realized price and how you've kind of found some signal on that. So I think that that'll, that'll be interesting, uh, you know, for listeners to hear about. And then also just your, your general outlook. So, you know, you touched on um, long-term holder supply, which is one of the biggest themes that we've been tracking since the summer. But um, what are some of the other main things that you're looking at from A, kind of this, this broader market structure? You know, what, what we're talking about is going to happen over the next two, three months uh, versus what do you look at on, on those shorter term timeframes in terms of on-chain? Is it, is it SOPR? Is it, you know, net realized profit losses? You know, what are you looking at? Yeah. So, I mean, I think from the most like basic level, um, not even on-chain, um, like not even derivative stuff. And I'm not a huge, like I'm not a huge fan of TA, but I think there, there is value in looking at the chart. There is just there, like, you know, it's the p- most pure form of, of the market's thoughts, um, just can you know condensed down into a visual, um, and so just looking at the chart, and I've just been just been like you know shit posting saying this over and over again, saying like vertical accumulation, vertical accumulation, and that's what's happening. Like during somewhat of a macro risk off, you know, with uh, the I mean the S and P and equities, they haven't you know had a rip down, but it's not like up only like you just a melt up like it has been since March. They've just been kind of chopping around and losing momentum. And so in that same time period, uh, Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's ripped. It's up, you know, 100%, 90% in the last three months or, or whatnot. So uh, especially, you know, recently, the last month, uh, it's up 25%, I believe. So just looking at that, um, there's there's something going on. And, and that something going on is, you know, being confirmed by what we see every single day, which is people aren't selling. Uh, we see a record, <laughs> a record low amount of coins that have, have moved within the last three months as a percent of total supply. Um, what Glassnode defines as long-term and, and short-term holders, it's quite, it's kind of hard to explain uh, in a quick Twitter uh, response when people ask, like, what defines this? Um, but more or less, it's 155-day threshold, but it's not a strict uh, 140, uh, 154 is short-term and 155 is long-term. There's a weight to it. So around, I think, 110 days or so, it begins to gain weight as a long-term holder. Uh, and then I think at like 170 or 180 days, it's the, the, the coin is, you know, 1.0 long-term holder and, and zero short-term holder. And that's because the UTXO, the probability of a UTXO being moved, the longer it's held, literally from the, the first block it's confirmed, decreases the, the longer it's held. And so that 155 days is basically like the, you know, a statistically significant point of that, that, that glass node and their awesome data team found, found to, you know, be, be right. So 
uh, that's what we're when we talk about long and short term. I think that's you know it's 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 valuable to understand how that's computed. Um, but you know that's basically what's driving these these cycles, right? When you're looking at like um, yes, the having has a ha like a big effect, uh, but I think into the future it increasingly has less and less of an effect. And right now, what we're just kind of seeing is you know the the we're we're in a demand driven uh, world now where it's less and less of I'm not a demand-driven uh, world in Bitcoin, but the the new supply of Bitcoin, like that, that 900 a day, 450 in, in 2024, I don't think it's it's as significant as just the amount, the influx of capital that's coming in, and the people that are saying we're not going to sell any of it, which is what we're seeing, right? Like the massive accumulation that we've seen in 2021. Uh, I think when you're looking at a lot of these trans exchange balances, a liquid supply, uh, your a liquid supply ratio exchange balance uh, ratio or, or percentage of, of total supply there's all these inflection points in march of 2020 and i don't think that's a coincidence i think that's that's because the world changed and like jeff like michael saylor literally said uh, and for me like i went from buying bitcoin and and owning um some apple stock because i like apple products and um and having bitcoin be you know 50 percent of what i got and you know i'm I'm just looking at stocks to invest in because I think I'm savvy to to going all in leverage long uh, Bitcoin starting in this you know or like late spring early summer um, you know and continuing to to buy every single day as much as I can um, and that was because I think the world changed the the macro environment the monetary system went from we're not on a good path to okay it's never going to be fixed there needs to be a solution I found a solution. And so that's just kind of what's happening. And we see little blips that, like we saw this, this summer in, uh, you know, in May, um, where derivatives get overexcited. There's just human psychology. People get overextended. Every, there's this, you know, massive uh, kind of distribution. But when you're looking at like spot dynamics, you know, all time high long term holder uh, supply percentage, right? Like you see, there's a reason that every time it gets above like 80% of long term supply percentage, there's kind of you know, a parabolic run up. It's because like that supply is just getting tighter. That free flow Bitcoin's is, float smaller, is at an all time low. Yeah. And so that's, that's essentially what's happening. And like, that's why Bitcoin can rip during when equity markets are installed. And like all the people that are trying to do cute correlations with, you know, Bitcoin and, and risk assets, like, oh, Bitcoin's a risk asset. It's not going to perform if equities draw down it's like well to an extent yeah it's true um in a, in a sense that everything is short you know when you're long any asset you're short the dollar so if the dollar pumps during a liquidity event yeah everything's gonna sell off or at least take a little bit of a hit because the denominator in btc usd is increasing in value okay fine but <laughs> what really drives the bitcoin price at this point is just is basically like we're engineering a supply squeeze by saying we're gonna hoard as much as we can and we're going to buy regardless of what the pundits say and what FUD's thrown at us and whether Michael Burry and uh, Steve Hankey laugh at us on Twitter, it doesn't matter because we're going to buy more. And, and so the price as any, you know, incremental amount of, of new capital comes in, they're, they're, you know, all competing and they're, you know, they, they compete against each other. They're, everybody's trying to chomp at the available supply and then we get a reflexive bull cycle. And, you know, then we'll see the people that are like, you bought some Bitcoin at, 7,000. Well, like, you know, maybe you want a nice, maybe you want a nice house at four, 400,000 or whatever insane peaks we get. Right. And so you sell a little bit. Um, and I think increasingly we might not see that because of um, the financialization of Bitcoin where hodlers immensely rich early and even like not so early, but like 
you know, people that arrived to Bitcoin in 2018, 2019, 2020 even um, have a ton of wealth in this, you know, in this asset. Like, I don't really ever want to sell. And maybe I'll just collateralize and live off it. Um, and that's where it gets interesting, in my opinion. Yeah, totally. One thing that you touched on that I think is, is really important to understand it's just that these long-term holders set the floor in a macro sense, right? They distribute into strength. They don't perfectly time the tops. They slowly sell in strength uh, and then they buy into weakness. Uh, and, and you get this supply shock effect on the market once long-term holders lock up a large enough portion of supply. And as we've talked about, as of right now, we've actually breached all-time highs in the long-term holder supply shock, which I personally think is more important than the long-term holder supply itself, because you're also comparing to short-term holder supply. So just looking at long-term holder supply, you know, you know, as circulating supply increases, the long-term holder supply is bound to increase as well. So seeing that ratio at all-time highs yeah. is indicative of the portion that they hold is actually um, at, a long, at, at an all-time high. Um, but yeah, like the way I see it is, as of right now, at least, is that, you know, we have the fuel laid out in the sense of these supply dynamics on chain, that supply is getting locked up by A, these long-term guys, also, these liquid entities, which for listeners are just entities that have a very low um, history of selling, so very very low likelihood of spending the coins that they've taken in. Um, and so we just now need that catalyst for demand. Um, and so some people have been talking about, is that an ETF, whatever? I personally think all-time highs themselves could be, an, it could be a catalyst, right? Like Bitcoin doesn't need an ETF. I mean, that'd be great if we got a spot ETF. Um, but yeah, all-time highs themselves could be a catalyst for more demand for retail to come in. But what happens is, is you have Bitcoin's float get so dried up when we get to the what, what's usually the bottom of a bear cycle. Um, and then at some point, the demand steps in and then offsets that. And you have to get a price increase because if people want to get those that few amount of coins, the only way they can acquire those coins is to bid the price up. And then once that happens... You know, as we mentioned, the long-term guys actually start to distribute into strength, but because they've locked up that supply while the demand stepped in, the momentum of the price increase has already occurred and the volume now starts to step in. But you have those long-term guys that really set the floor initially and kind of give it that spark in terms of they kind of set the fuel out, right? And then the demand comes in and, and sets that fire ablaze. So the way I see it is now, you know, we're kind of at that inflection point where the demand is going to step in. Um, we're, we're starting to see that, you know, just through price action. But, you know, I think all-time highs themselves could be a catalyst for that. And as you mentioned, we've seen, if uh, you know, the first downtick in long-term holder supply. Maybe that's indicative of long-term holders starting to sell off. But I think it's very crucial for people out there to understand because we've been pushing so hard that, oh, long-term holder supply is going up for so long. Once we start saying that it's- Hopium, decline, bro. Just hopium, bro. <laughs> yeah, just hopium, man. On-chain on -chain is just snake oil. But once it starts- yeah, so to, go, ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I you know, if we want to touch on that, that like metric that I don't even have a, a cool name for it. I need a cool name, like a liquid supply shock. That, just, that sounds like bullish as hell. Um, but so, yeah, I, I basically, Glassnode, they give you uh, market value to realized value, which is- um, so when you're talking about realized, there's price, right? BTC, USD. Um, and then there's realized price, which because Bitcoin is completely transparent, uh, you know, basically property network, if you want to think of it like that, every single UTXO or Bitcoin is visible uh, and has a, you know, a trail of ownership um, from the time it was mined. Um, and it's pseudonymous. So just, you know, addresses own this Bitcoin, they send it, 
um, UTXOs distributed, they can inputs and outputs can be combined, but essentially you have this verifiable immutable ledger of every single time a coin was moved um, and at what at what price because you can match the, the price with a you know exchange rate or the, the time it was moved with an exchange rate. And so we see with I think I think maybe realized cap is uh, realized market capitalization is an easier one to, to understand intuitively. Um, uh, all, uh, I'm sorry, market a realized market cap is just a way it's an it's like a sum of every single coin at the price was last moved. So realized price is essentially it's just a cost basis uh, of every single coin in the network according to the chain, according to this this property rights network. And so you can kind of think of this like yes, I can move coins that I acquired that I didn't sell to myself a year later and then realize price might tick up. Uh, but you also have you know people that like I don't. I'm not going to sell my Bitcoin at a hundred thousand or even maybe a million um, because of, of my understanding of, of what this thing is. And so my price for Bitcoin is like, you know, it sounds crazy, but like infinity dollars and I'm not going to move probably a lot of my stack. So there is some kind of, you know, like some people say realized price is useful. Some people don't like it, but I think it, you know, um, it's, it's just kind of one of the most pure forms of quantifying Bitcoin's monetization process. It's like, look at this just accrual of value over time in log scale without all the volatility. And so Glassnode gives us a pretty cool metric called uh, market value to realized value, which is a ratio of the price versus the realized price. And, and basically like all of this data we're talking about, it's taking the same kind of data and just interpreting it and doing it in a different way. So when you're talking about long-term holders accumulating in a bear and then distributing into a bull. So what does that look like when you're talking, when you're talking about the uh, MVRV market value to realized value uh, ratio? Well, you know, as, as uh, you know, you know, me and you and all the hodlers and people that have conviction accumulate this free float, well, that gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then any incre incremental marginal increase in capital bids the spot price up BTC USD as there's just a supply and demand imbalance. And so that price often reflexively gets driven up. And so, but you often see the realized price is just kind of ticking. It's not really, it's not moving. It's not nearly moving as fast as the, the spot prices. And so you see, what do you see? This, this market value to realized value ratio, it goes parabolic. And you, and you see basically with every Bitcoin parabolic cycle top and bottom, you see this, this ratio go parabolic and then it crashes back down as what happens. Even if um, the price isn't falling as much as the ratio is, it's because all of these long-term holders are all these people that have just been, you know, eating up the free float for years. They distribute a little bit. They take some chips off the table, and so they, those coins are hitting the market. Coin days are in in on-chain sense are being destroyed, and that realized price, that realized cap, ticks up as a two hundred dollar coin turns into a today. You know, someone acquired some coins early in twenty seventeen that has a realized price of two thousand. And they sell one of those Bitcoin for today, 57,000. Well, that realized price, realized market cap ticked up $55,000. And so you can kind of see this with the ratio and the relationship between, you know, these reflexive bull cycles and then distribution, like from the top of 2017 to really about uh, April of 2020, realized price didn't change much. It was just coins changing hands between people that understood the network. They understood what was happening. Even though price crashed for, you know, seven, uh, was it 80% from 20K to 3K, and then it ranged and went everywhere, realized price just kind of kicked along as it was just people exchanging coins from, you know, weak hands to convicted hands. And eventually with a macro, you know, 
backdrop and, and all this stuff happening, we saw that free float run out. And so what I did with that, with that ratio was essentially, you can see uh, Glassnode provides the long-term uh, long holder realized, uh, or long-term holder market value to realized value ratio and the short-term holder realized uh, uh, market value to realized value ratio. And the short-term holder uh, ratio basically just oscillates between one. You know, it, it's because it's a short time frame, 155 days. Sometimes it gets it gets overheated, like it did maybe in April, and sometimes it gets uh, it's far below zero. The cost basis of these holders compared to the price when it's you know uh, May or, or July or something, um, when all these people that bought it six, at at 64k are underwater. Um, but the long term holder is, is a little bit different. But regardless, if you just take if you just basically backwards compute the realized price you can see a really interesting dynamic with the cost basis of these two investor cohorts. And, and you see in real time, the long-term holder realized price is just flat for the first part of this parabolic bull market, as it's just, again, like we're talking about this new money compete and the old money that's still stacking. But basically you can think of all new money as, or all money as like the new money coming in. And there's all reflexively bidding each other up uh, the, because they're just competing for this new supply. And as, as you know, the long-term holders distribute, well, what happens? That long-term holder realized price as time goes on and as coins are just spent, this long-term holder realized price ticks upwards. And so when you're looking at the relationship between these two cost bases, um, it, it's tougher to get a top, but you, you see basically a, a generational buying signal when you have long-term holders and their cost basis is above short-term holders. Um, and so like that's been the three generational bottoms. Um, but yeah, I think it's just another one of those metrics that we have in our tool bag that, you know, is just interesting to watch. And I think, you know, I think we're the reflexive part of that bull market as I've seen it with this ratio, which trends up um, during a bull cycle and down during kind of an accumulation phase, like we're in the, this, this ratio of the two cost basis has been trending down all summer. Um, if we enter that kind of uh, market phase where long-term holders are are decreasing their holdings are distributing to the market, um, that ratio will tick back up. And I think that's the mania time. That's the, that's the time when it gets crazy. I don't know yeah. if that made all sense. I mean, I'm hopping all over the place. <laughs> no, 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 totally. You, you did a good job explaining that. I also think like running the ratio between the two, I think was, was really nice. Um, and the little orange line in the post, uh, that, that's just another, you know, clean way to look at the dynamic between the two. Um, what, you know, one other thing I saw you post today was the URPD. I'm actually putting that in my newsletter today. Um, do you want to just kind of talk about what that is, um, and kind of what the implications of, of where we are in, in relatively in relativity to all the on-chain volume that we now have below us? Yeah, I think it's just, it's interesting. Cause like I saw, I, I DM'd it to Preston, um, but he pressed it, uh, I, you know, before I posted it, but Preston posted yesterday, he was like, he was like, basically showing a spot volume on some you know, Bitcoin exchange, and maybe it aggregates all the volume across exchanges and showing that like above 58, you know, we went from 58 to 64 or whatever, but like there's almost no volume there. You know, there's not much trading volume, but the cool thing about Bitcoin, you know, compared to say Amazon stock or NASDAQ or whatever you're trading in the TradFi system is we have, again, we have this like native property rights ledger where we can see what coins actually exchanged chance, how much volume on chain uh, was distributed up here? Like, you know, who was actually taking part of their coins and, and moving them? And the, and the reality is like, it's basically hot air above 60. I mean, you know, there's there was some profit taking, but ultimately like that kind of blow off top of part of the market wasn't much, it wasn't like we saw a massive amount of, you know, from the initial part, it wasn't like we saw in 2017 
um, everybody kind of started, you know, selling and distributing their coins and, you know, holy crap, 20K was 200 uh, 12 months ago. Like I'm selling. It was more like it was a derivative led move. And most people were just hodling or buying even um, and just like sitting on their hands. And so, you know, we didn't get that underlying spot bid, but there wasn't much distribution up there. So like, in, you know, the, the UTXO distribution, um, just kind of looking at like these on-chain volume levels, I think it's like, it's, it's kind of a new way of visualizing like support resistance potentially, you know, because, you know, if, if for resistance, right? Like if there was a, a huge bar of volume at 64K, you'd be like, okay, like, there's a lot of people that bought literally they bought the top and like they might want to take some profits they might want to get rid of their coins when they finally break even like i mean i know i'm not but some people are that's just you know that's how markets work that's how, how psychology works so the fact that we see no volume up there i think that's kind of the signal for me that you know we'll, we'll probably flirt with 58k 60k whatever for a little bit maybe a couple of days maybe maybe a week who knows but i think once it snaps it's going to be the same as when 20k broke and it's like you know maybe we retest maybe but it's like, for the most part, like I'm anticipating off to the races once that happens. Um, I don't know if you, if you do as, as well. Yeah, totally. So like, I think first of all, the, the most important level from just a purely like price structure standpoint is right around 50K. Um, and the reasoning is for me is that A, that's, that's obviously a big psychological number, but B, that's the point of breakdown from May. So, you know, if, if you go back and look at the chart, you're setting higher lows, um, higher highs, right? And we came back down and we set this lower low and then we came back up and set a lower high. And so just from a pure like price structure standpoint, the second we broke that lower low, that was confirmation. Although we already had had a lower low and, and lower high, but once we had came back down and started to go below that lower low, that's full confirmation um, that we broke in market structure. So Holding above that, so you know, a couple of weeks back or a month back, when we initially broke above it, uh, we had that failed breakout to about 53k because we got a bunch of leverage that hopped in the system and got kind of eager there. Um, but for me, that that level is really important, and, and that's kind of the, the bull bear threshold. Um, and then obviously, like like you mentioned, that this 58k level I think is is kind of the um you know, kind of the, the last real resistance for the market. Um, I don't think, you know, if, if we get up to 60, I don't, I don't see us slowing down before 64 necessarily. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think like buying the all time high breakout is plus EV. Like, I think it's, I think it's kind of the most brain dead trade you could really take. Um, you know, every time. Was it you that tweeted that earlier in the year? That's like, it's one of the easiest things to do is just buy Bitcoin and it breaks all time highs. I remember that tweet from someone and like, I, I remember feeling, even though I literally stacked every single day with this, like, like living, <laughs> eating dirt, stacking sats and, and maxing out as much leverage as I could, uh, unsecured leverage, by the way, um, <laughs> in the form of <laughs> 0% APR credit uh, for, for periods of time to stack Bitcoin to my cold storage, even though I literally bought every single day, it was like Bitcoin breaks 20K and goes to 25 and like three days and it's like holy shit i'm short bitcoin and even though you have like everything in bitcoin you feel short and like the people that are sitting on zero are like okay i was wrong in 2013 i was wrong in 2017 i was wrong in 2021 i thought i was right in 2021 i'm clearly wrong i gotta get some, i gotta get some bitcoin so yeah dude i mean i i, I think it would be probably pretty crazy I, I cut you off there i'm sorry no 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 you're good i, I love it i love it one of the things that I've really uh, 
been, been thinking about lately is this tweet from Mike, like Mike Alfred, like uh, a month and a half ago when he said, we're going to get these institution, uh, these, these institutional announcements between, I think it was like September, like mid September and, and early November. So poor Mike, Mike's DMS are probably getting exploded with when announcement questions. Um, but I'm, I'm curious because there are very uh, specific parameters around that. I don't know if he was just, you know, kind of shit posting, but when we go back in summer and, and, you know, um, from, from summer to now, especially at the end of July, I think the date was July 27th or 28th. I remember pretty vividly um, when we initially got this huge uptick in whales holdings. And we've seen this kind of perpetual increase until the, the last like two or three weeks from um, entities over a thousand BTC. And then actually over the last month, you, you've seen a slight decline in entities over a thousand BTC when you filter out for exchanges and stuff. But over the last month, you've also seen the 100 to, to 1,000 cohort um, start to step up their holdings. So they had just been flat since, since May, like literally just flat. Um, and then over the, over the last three weeks to a month, as you started to see whales slowly distributing, um, those guys have stepped in and actually offset the coins that they've sold by about 2,000. So point I'm just trying to make here is that, you know, there's nuance to like the actual entities data and, and clustering them into yeah. which cohort. But I'm just trying to say that there's been really large buyers since the end of July, um, right around the bottom. Right. And, and also when you look at like transactional volume, so I don't know if you ever look at this metric, it's pretty new. It's like the, the entity adjusted transaction count. It's basically showing you that. Yeah. Okay. You're not in your head, like the relative volume. Like when you look at the $10 million plus transactions, I mean, they have just dominated volume over the last month. Um, you know, I think they got as as high as like 85%. Um, and so I think some of this is potentially like just exchanges batching their transactions, but I think it's probably just large OTC deals that we're not, you know, seeing particularly like translating and you know, right into price um, as soon as they occur. Uh, but you are starting to see more and more supply move to these large entities and you had, you know, you had Sailor, whatever, a month and a half ago announced that he had bought Bitcoin again. You know, I, I love how that's just like a given thing in the market now. And we just don't even react to that. Um, but there's so many unclaimed coins that we've seen accumulated by these large buyers. And, you know, Mike isn't the only one that I know you and I both anecdotally are talking to some of these guys. We just DMing people on Twitter, asking everyone a million questions. And you know, several of these people are all anecdotally saying, yeah, there were some, there were some buyers over the summer. And um, I'm just curious to see if we start to get them poking their neck out as we reach all time highs, uh, because now the incentive is there for them to, to step out and, and kind of announce, right? Like I made this tweet a couple of weeks ago and I said, you know, everyone, everyone thinks that, you know, announcements are going to be uh, the, the catalyst for all time highs, but all time highs could actually be the catalyst for announcements, yeah. right? Because, because yeah. these guys are human and, and at the end of the day, you know, they're going to, they're going to stick their neck out when it makes them look smart. And, and, you know, their investors are going to praise them for holding this position. If they came out, you know, when it looked like we're an on-chain data that they bought at the end of, at the end of, at, you know, at the end of July, moving into August, uh, perhaps, you know, maybe their investors wouldn't have been uh, too happy about that, but, you know, now getting above all-time highs and being able to say, oh yeah, we bought it, you know, the mid, mid upper 30 K we bought it 40 K, you know, all of a sudden they look like geniuses. Right. So, um, I'm curious to see if we start to get some of those announcements. Um, I, I, I'm kind of agnostic about the ETF. Um, we can get into that if you'd like about the futures ETF. I'd much rather see a spot ETF, but 
where I think, you know, perhaps people aren't really thinking about is we've seen all these huge buyers and we haven't really seen um, anywhere close to the majority of those coins, you know, being claimed yet. Yeah. I think the first thing is like all the, all the big, you know, macro funds guys, the, the Dali, like, like literally like the Dahlias of the world in January or February, it was like February, March timeframe. We said, you know, Dahlia was like, Oh, you know, and, and honestly, like part of my thesis, the aha moment for me was like, and one of the pieces at Bitcoin magazine, where I went from being like a media guy to like, Hey, like you guys, you should do uh, more market stuff was uh, I wrote the conclusion of the long-term debt cycle and the rise of Bitcoin. And it was taking Ray Dalio's entire basically framework that he made billions on and like studying it pretty closely. And then being like, Bitcoin is, is the solution to all of these problems he laid out in the digital age and the information age. And it was like, it's a perfected monetary asset. And that was kind of like my, one of my aha moments. And Ray Dalio has come out like, you know, I think he has the biggest or second biggest or one of the biggest hedge funds, like asset under management in the world, like literally like $40 billion, like an immense amount of capital to like actively manage. He was like, oh yeah, like, you know, blockchain, blah, 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 nonsense. And like, whenever, 2018, 2020. And then um, in, in March, he kind of had to eat his words and he's like, yeah, like Bitcoin's interesting, but we don't know. And you, and you just have to know that these guys you know, even like that when we trolled them, what's his name? Scott Minard, right? He was like, he comes out, he's like, we're bullish Bitcoin, Bitcoin to 100,000. And then he's like, Bitcoin, screw it, Bitcoin to 600,000. And then Bitcoin breaks its all-time highs before his GTF, uh, his, his like GBTC uh, fund thing can get set up. And he's like, uh, we're retesting 20K. And it's like, no, we're not, Scott. Uh, we're, uh, but all these guys like are buying in big numbers. Um, and I wish I was more familiar with, and I, I don't really think there's much clarity here, which is why no one's familiar, but with public, uh, companies reporting their Bitcoin, right? Like, like Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy, like Bitcoin's an intangible digital asset, right? Like, and it's, and it's marked. And for like these corporate treasurers, the thing is, that's kind of annoying is like, if you're buying Bitcoin, then they're on the upside If Bitcoin 10X is, you can't realize any of the gains, which is fine. It's, it's an intangible, but it's not, it's not part of your earnings per share. But if it goes down, it's, it's in, it's an impairment. And it's marked as a, as a loss on your earnings. So like, that's one of the things that's, that's not ideal about holding Bitcoin from a corporate perspective. But the thing is like all these wall street, big money guys, I mean, I, I'm part of the, like, I see some of the stuff happening with uh, BM and not just BM, but like the conference and, and there's some of the biggest names in the world from finance, uh, industry, uh, insurance, everything, um, involved actively. Um, so like, yeah, they're involved and, and very few are like Michael Saylor and will say, hey, uh, we just bought on the way down, by the way, says, hey, we just borrowed 500 billion, 500 billion million dollars at 6% for five years. And we just bought the dip. And then Bitcoin goes to 29.5 one day and interday and he's getting trolled all hell. And he's just remember, remember the sailors like, getting liquidated FUD. Dude, <laughs> it was like, yeah, this they're gonna have to restructure a trust and distribute his hundred thousand Bitcoin. Like this is and and Sailor has all of it constructed in a way where like he's a public company. And I don't know if it like it's not required for him to tweet it out on the day or after it's purchased. Like I think he could definitely do it quarterly, but I think we'll we'll definitely see some um, you know, where the Bitcoin miners are are accumulating, right? We have like a ton of public companies go to bitcointreasuries.com, I think. It's like awesome to see all these like, you know, companies populate the, 
the website, but I think we're going to see more of that. Just like the, the inflation narrative is, is real. Like, like even if it's just a narrative, like, you know, I don't think Bitcoin and CPI is much, but it's like people are realizing, Fed officials are saying, yeah, the inflation thing we've been saying is transitory forever isn't transitory. And like, you know, the, and with Bitcoin and when, when that happens and then Bitcoin smashes its all time highs and you've had a bunch of nerds and a bunch of guys with laser eyes screaming in your face saying Bitcoin's an inflation hedge, you need some Bitcoin. And then it happens and then Bitcoin rips, it's pretty powerful. Um, and so like the TradFi guys, if they, if they haven't bought yet, um, which a lot of them did, they're gonna buy hard. And the ones that did are gonna buy more. And so like, you know, I, I do think we're gonna see some pretty big uh, news um, announcements. I know we've talked about one that's under wraps, that's gonna be big um, narrative wise, um, but big in general. So like, yeah, dude, I think quarter four is gonna be exciting. And I think a lot of people that are expecting, I mean, I, look, I like the having charts. I like the cycle by cycle charts. But I, I do believe we just had somewhat of a mini bear market. Like we had a full kind of bear market uh, cycle in the span of like three months. It was like derivatives licked. It's a huge, you know, puke of, of old coins. Okay. Narrative FUD. Okay. Minor capitulation at a scale we haven't seen. We had a negative 30% difficulty adjustment. Any of these weak operations, wiped. All of these ASICs, they like their values went to nothing. Like, you know, you had to keep the lights on and anybody that could stay on is profitable at 30k with a with with a you know a 30% difficulty adjustment that yet had yet to come and all of these miners in the China controlled Bitcoin flood they just relocated and some of them are still there the zero percent metric is kind of horseshit but um, you know like how much just just take off what Bitcoin's kind of gone through the flood it's eliminated where we were a year ago it's like okay Michael Saylor adopted Bitcoin corporate uh, Bitcoin strategy Bitcoin standard he's he's basically calling the Fed's bluff and borrowing as much as he can at, in, you know, near zero rates. In real terms, all of the loans he took are, are, are under 0% to buy Bitcoin. Okay. El Salvador, small country, whatever, adopted Bitcoin as legal tender and it's working. Like in the sense that like, you know, it's even like the Lightning Network dot ETH people and crypto people like shit on it. And for like, oh, Lightning's nothing. You know, look at public channel capacity is 200 million. It's, it's nothing. It's, it's, it's a total joke. Look at this DeFi protocol. But it's like, no, a country just adopted a Bitcoin standard. I mean, or like, you know, there's still dollars, but they just onboarded a nation. They airdropped everybody 30 bucks in sats and it's working. And for the for the people that aren't access, like there's more Bitcoin users than bank account holders in El Salvador. So when's the next one coming? It's going to come at some point. And so the people that think that just with how much has changed, uh, from a narrative perspective, from a maturation perspective, from a flood busting perspective, I don't think a, a December top tick is going to happen. It's not like, you know, the people that are expecting, you know, the same old kind of, you know, top bear market, you know, everyone goes home and, and you know, it's, it's the same old kind of repeating thing. I, I don't think so. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that there's not going to be volatility and drawdowns along the way, but, you know, I think that there's merit to the, the super cycle uh, kind of thesis there in that sense. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, when, when everybody's looking for the same thing to happen and the odds of that happening are kind of neutralized um, by default. What are your thoughts of um, just the whole four-year cycle thing moving forward? I kind of stand in the camp with like Willie where, you know, I'm not saying we don't have drawdowns, but I think we kind of become this more free-floating thing just based off of the, the supply and demand. You know, we talked about a lot of these metrics that we've been following accumulation since the summer, um, you know, that that are resembling 
you know, the, the beginning or you, know, you call it the, the end of a bear market heading into the, the beginning of a, a bull market. Um, do, you, do you still think we kind of have these four year cycles uh, revolving around around mining? Um, I personally don't think so. Um, and the reasoning is because, A, that, the, you know, having just doesn't have as large of an effect as it did on the overall market and supply um, compared to 2013. Also, as we talked about, you know, miners, miners aren't looking to sell, right? You know, here, here at Block, where we see a lot of, a lot of these people getting involved in mining, uh, they, they, you know, have access to the capital markets and they're able to actually cover their OPEX without having to actually sell the, the BTC onto the open market. Um, and so with that being said, I don't think that miners uh, as, as um, you know, a, a subset of selling pressure is going to be as substantial as um, things like a just flat out exchange fees that are sold onto the open market. Although seeing Coinbase take whatever ten percent of their of their fees and are now reinvesting that in crypto, hopefully most of that's Bitcoin. Uh, that that's good to see. And then also like an ETF, right? You have like Grayscale, for example, which isn't an ETF, obviously, but they take two percent of the you know their their BTC holdings and they use that as a, as a fee, just sell it onto the open market. Um, and so, you know, if you have some spot ETF, which is probably going to do insane volume, um, at least several months in probably, um, you know, that that selling pressure will be much more substantial than that daily mining selling pressure. Um, and so, yeah, I think if you do, if you do have the four year cycles continue, it's probably just pure market psychology more than actually revolving around the halvings. Uh, but anyway, I'll let you talk. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree entirely. I think. Bitcoin has, there's like two, like we've entered Bitcoin's second decade on March 13th, uh, 2020. That was like lying in the sand, Bitcoin, not as has grown up, but it's like Bitcoin's in phase two of its adoption. Um, it was like, goes from like the cypherpunk, internet money, you know, proof of concepts. Okay, fringe libertarians um, and, you know, and econ nerds that are like, holy, like Austrians that are like, holy crap, this is the holy grail. In 2017, it becomes somewhat of like a, a hype kind of cultural thing where like it's finally breaks in and then draws down 80%. And then three years, it kind of ranges. And, and you know, you know, there's still that diehard cohort of believers that are gaining conviction every single day and stacking and the hodlers of last resort set the floor like we talked about, but it's still like didn't really, you know, no one, it wasn't, it wasn't the, like the solution for a lot of these like people that were still kind of in the in the fiat matrix or if you want to call it that and then march of 2020 happened and the world woke up and i think the world changed and so now you see right the access to public capital markets the guys like michael saylor the guys the guys the bitcoin miners the 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 more you know funds and or not funds the more companies that ipo that have some sort of relation to bitcoin with access to public capital markets bitcoin gets more and more intertwined with the legacy system as a as a monetary asset, basically it as a, almost a pure gauge. I don't think we're there yet, but I think Bitcoin eventually at five trillion to ten trillion dollars, um, most like you know most of those at, at a ten trillion dollar five hundred you know five hundred thousand maybe a twenty trillion uh, dollar you know one million dollar Bitcoin, um, we're going to see Bitcoin trades less like a uh, you know a growing exploding uh, network, uh, and rather it's like a pure gauge of of, you know, it's like a fire alarm for what's happening in the fiat system, where right now it's mostly adoption, right? Like we obviously like quantitative easing, Fed announces a new bond purchasing program tomorrow. I think Bitcoin bids really, really, really hard. But uh, for the most part, it's just, you know, on-chain supply and demand dynamics, obviously capital inflows to one side of the equation. 
Um, but I think the in, like kind of the interconnectedness of, of Bitcoin with the legacy system is a net benefit, not 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 a bad thing like people think. Like the financialization of Bitcoin is great, and I think eventually, like in 2024 or 2025, Bitcoin, you know, whatever the size is, I think personally at least 10x where we are from uh, here, probably a 20x. Um, when Bitcoin draws down 30% because it's eliminating imbalance and there's a huge derivative blow up, well, it's actually going to probably drag down the legacy system too, in a way where the equities draw down. And because it's just a function, right, of everything, all assets, the values of it is a function of basically a massive credit bubble. And Bitcoin is just this, is, is everybody collectively or rather individually calling that bluff and saying like, wait, this game is, is kind of rigged. I don't want to play it. And so like, I'm just going to, I, I prefer to value, you know, my wealth in this thing. Um, and so you're kind of seeing that the monetization process of that take place where I agree the havings aren't, aren't really the impact. The impact is one, just to fight, like the people's really understanding Bitcoin straight up, right? Like if we had a billion people that understood what we understand or not maybe like on chain or whatever, but understood what Bitcoin was as a monetary asset, the price would be a lot, lot higher obviously. Um, and so it's just a matter of people's understanding, people's education, and that comes gradually. And then when you have, you know, exogenous kind of variables that occur like COVID or like, you know, the Fed doing some QE program or whatever, or the next, you know, the million, the trillion dollar coin gets minted. Well, I think Bitcoin might gap because all you have, you have some seller at 63 K that's like, they just minted a trillion dollar coin and I'm sitting here on a limit order. Like what a <laughs> And so I think that just, you know, we're going to see that dynamic kind of, you know, change in the sense that like, no, it's not like Bitcoin's not a proof of concept thing anymore. Bitcoin's not like, a, you know, uh, okay, it might work. Like in 2017, there was no Segway. There was no Lightning. Bitcoin couldn't scale. Well, that's wrong. We have entire countries using Bitcoin as a, as a money. And so like, yeah, Bitcoin can work. And increasingly, it's it looks to many like there is no alternative. And so, you know, the super cycle is not 80% three year drawdowns, but 50, 40, maybe 60, like we just saw, maybe 65, but rounded bottoms, 65%, uh, 50% drawdowns because derivative excess, uh, speculative mania, uh, you know, and, and just kind of these same, you know, market dynamics is, is psychology, but I don't think Bitcoin's going to draw down 80% and then people are going to forget about it until 2024. And that's like, Oh, having bull cycle, yeah. like, I just don't, I don't believe like that's, that's what's happening, but you know, I could be wrong. Um, we'll see. Yeah, totally. Like the way I kind of like think through it is that, you know, the, the, the having is kind of bootstrapped adoption and like number go up is the ultimate marketing, right. For, for anything. Um, and so for Bitcoin having these, you know, every four years event, like it, it slowly kind of allowed, um, you know, adoption to get ingrained in the new people coming on the network. But if, if Bitcoin only ever went up, then you would have no flush out of these speculators. And then every cycle, you know, the coins have gotten more deeply embedded into the hands of those with conviction in the bear market. And it builds this higher, higher floor for the price, right? If, if we only ever went up, then the second we started going down, you would have huge convexities of downside. So I think having these, having these cycles have kind of helped bootstrap Bitcoin in that sense. Um, and, and they've, they've gotten the momentum of adoption going. So now, now it, you know, Bitcoin itself as, as a network is beyond that kind of, um, you know, 
threshold of or point of no return in the sense that it's now a self-feeding thing. You don't necessarily need these four-year halving events to draw in new demand, right? Um, and, and so, you know, I think like in, in the past that drew a lot of new people into Bitcoin purely for price, uh, as you had the reflexivity of, of this massive uh, bull run effect that initiated from the halving in 2013 and, and 2017. Um, but yeah, now, now I think like Bitcoin is beyond the point that it needs that. And it's now, uh, has, has the, you know, the momentum of adoption in its favor in the sense that, um, you know, it's, it's now a self-feeding thing. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand, um, you know, there's Bitcoin, the asset, but, um, and, and, and they're obviously intertwined, but then there's Bitcoin, the network and like, and most people just, you know, if you're looking at it like, oh, speculative mania, you know, you, you miss this, but just, just Bitcoin can scale so much, so much faster than people can comprehend because one, it trades exponentially, you know, you have to look at a blog chart, but it trades exponentially because adoption is exponential in the sense that, uh, you know, someone develops some open source uh, code on GitHub for the Lightning Network, and it's a massive improvement. And then it gets implemented in, into every single wallet and shipped out to hundred million people. And, you know, or Jack Mahler says, here's a strike API, anybody, any social media platform, you can plug into this if you want, and and you can and you can send and receive Bitcoin anywhere in the world, and we'll we'll do the dollar side of things, so no user gets taxed, and so that can and that goes from Jack coding in his in his basement for the last six years grinding, to building and assembling a team and then shipping it, and then boom, 100 million people have it, and a hundred million people that weren't using Bitcoin, even if they don't even know they're using Bitcoin to send and receive Twitter tips. They're using the Bitcoin Lightning Network. They're using the Bitcoin Network. Um, you know, eventually these people hold some stats themselves. Um, and so how, what's the marginal kind of cost or, or you know, uh, of, of someone plugging into the, that network as it grows stronger and, and, you know, faster and just better applications and, and all of this stuff. And as it, as it embeds itself in the regulatory environment, it, you know, that's why the price goes exponential is because Bitcoin, the network can continue as an open source monetary network, opt-in voluntary you know, Western Union or, 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 you know, any legacy traditional banking system, they're all doing stuff proprietary. They're all, you know, we're going to do things our way, our central hub, and we're going to talk to you and, and your central hub. But no, we have an open decentralized monetary network that anybody can plug into, that anybody can build upon. In the same way that we're sharing content and our ideas and charts and data from kind of a financial or a market sense, there's people that are, are coding, there's people that are building, there's people that are educating and, and whatever, and it spreads like a virus. It literally is like this, this massive network effect. And so I think that's just the most beautiful thing is that we get to live through this, man. Like we're just watching it all unfold and we're like, oh, yep, another huge announcement. Like, oh, you know, the city of Toronto today is like, hey, we're gonna heat houses and commercial buildings by mining Bitcoin and then just sending heat. And it's like, why would we do that? Because there's an obvious economic incentive. And so just something like that, like today, where it's like, yeah, it's like a kind of a non-event. It's pretty cool. But like, think about how far Bitcoin has come in the sense that like one of the nicest Bitcoin miners, the ASIC, uh, the Antminer uh, S19J Pro, I think I said that right. I posted this the other day, it is more hash rate in one ASIC. It's like 10,000 10, bucks than the entire Bitcoin network did in 2013. So just like, I mean, and that's, yes, Moore's law and like technological advancement more broadly doesn't matter about Bitcoin, but like, just think about how fast this thing is growing. I mean, you're looking at it from a day to day, hour to hour lens and Bitcoin's pumping or dumping or it's volatile or whatever you're looking at. It's like, you can't see that. 
But when you zoom out and really can understand and contextualize what's occurring here with everyone adopting this thing, it is it is just, you know, what a time to be alive. <laughs> it's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely, man. What are some of the, I, I asked Mike this last week and I really like this question. I'm starting asking everybody this. What are some of the like key milestones or, or inflection points for Bitcoin that you think are, are, are important for adoption? So, um, you know, the obvious one is, is El Salvador, right? And, and them using uh, Lightning. Um, but, you know, like a, from kind of a more philosophical standpoint, I think uh, Bitcoin getting ingrained into politics, I think is, is, is uh, really crucial because then that becomes kind of a competition amongst different politicians to, um, you know, push Bitcoin further and, and leverage that as a, a form of saying, hey, you know, Bitcoin is for the people. I want to promote Bitcoin because I'm for the people. Um, I, I think like politicizing Bitcoin is, is one. And then also like funds being compared to Bitcoin, right? So being benchmarked against Bitcoin, that's that's going to be really crucial because if Bitcoin is now in this basket of, of asset classes that you're being measured against with bonds, stocks, and, and now whatever you have, like 5% Bitcoin or even 3% Bitcoin, uh, that's going to grow to a lot larger percentage, <laughs> right, of, of, of your portfolio. But if you're being measured against that, you know, you're going to have no choice but to take a small position to hedge against the fact that you're being measured against that. And then it almost becomes a self-fulfilling thing, as, as Satoshi said, um, you know, in, in the early days. So uh, what, what are some of those milestones and inflection points for you? Yeah, I agree with the politics thing. I, I think the cool thing is um, we've seen like the Republican, I mean, if we're talking about America, we've seen like, you know, Ted Cruz and like, and like, you know, Florida and, and Texas be friendly with, with Bitcoin. And that shows the, the kind of the jurisdictional arbitrage and, and competitiveness uh, to come, which is really, really cool. Um, and two, I think there's some stuff happening under the surface and I can't really reveal much, but I'm happening kind of with around our, our company or just like, you know, associates with, with uh, Bitcoin and politics, um, which will be, you know, we're doing some stuff on the surface, uh, Bitcoin only kind of stuff uh, in terms of education, in terms of uh, lobbying efforts, in terms of this stuff, where I really, really uh, am, I'm pretty confident that in 2024, if you're a Brad Sherman type, if you're actively not, not you know, maybe not a Bitcoin evangelist, right? You don't have to be pumping Bitcoin tweets. Uh, but if you're against Bitcoin actively, you're going to not be in office for long. Um, and I think that's coming. And I don't know if that unfolds on a presidential level, but I know, uh, you know, for local jurisdictions and stuff from a Senate or a House perspective, that's coming. Or it's, you know, it's, it's happening under the surface today. And I think we'll see a little bit of it in the 2022 midterms uh, in 2024. And I think that's really, really exciting. Um, where if you're actively against Bitcoin, you are you know, you're like way out of the ordinary. You're like, you know, it's, it's like you're crossing some line because guess what? 120 million Americans have exposure to this thing. Or like everybody has S&P 500 and there's 10 companies S&P with it on their balance sheets. Like, are you crazy? Um, so I think from that sense, um, that's kind of another thing. And I, in terms of like, you know, another milestone, I think like some sort of G7 or like, and I think they're still a little bit away from this, but some like, not in El Salvador, but like a, a legitimate, uh, you know, big country. Like, you know, what if, and I, I, it would be very interesting from a geo, geopolitical standpoint, but what if it like is revealed that Russia is actively mining and stacking Bitcoin or just like, you know, I just threw that out there, but like, or that Saudi Arabia was like, you know, it was, was building out a massive mining farm, which like, again, 
that's that will come like play the tape eight years from now and like bet the farm that saudi aramco and the saudis and anybody that's producing oil is going to be mining and stacking bitcoin and it's going to be at a country level as well and a sovereign level but like when does that happen and how what's the fomo like after that is going to be super interesting because i think there's a chance that it all unfolds really quickly um you know people say 10 years and it's like yeah 10 years like i mean that sounds quick to some it's like oh 10 years a decade that's fast but like this can this can unfold really really quickly um which you know a lot of people aren't expecting especially if you're like oh yeah it's gonna go up to x amount and then i'm gonna be good for another three years right if you're plan planning for this bear market or you're planning for something and we see a G7 country be like, hey, yeah, we're adopting Bitcoin as legal tender and we're stacking. Uh, and, and, you know, Bitcoin's, you know, we're <laughs> like, we're going to get Bitcoin to citizens or, you know, whatever. Like, that's that's something that I think is one of those lines. Um, El Salvador, obviously the first domino, but, you know, I guess maybe a central bank. But they, again, they don't have an incentive to announce it. Um, and they lose all credibility when they do that with their own currency. So, yeah, I mean, these are all things that, you know, will come and we can say all of this, like you can do, you can say the craziest Bitcoin prediction and it sounds outrageous now. And then five years from now, you'd be like, wow. Or 10 years from now, I'd be like, wow, Will was a visionary. Like, how did he know that was coming? <laughs> because like, it, it's just, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I truly, I truly believe that from a game theoretic sense. Uh, you don't have a choice to play. Uh, it's just a matter of when you do. And so, yeah, let it, let it unfold. Totally. I, I love that, man. And with that, I think it's, it's probably a good time to, to start wrapping it up. Uh, I just want to kind of give you the floor to, A, kind of get anything off your chest if, if there's something that you wanted to address while we while we were on here we didn't get to. Uh, if you want to say that real quick. And then um, also just plug yourself in, man, and like plug in your newsletter and, and your, your Twitter and, and all that. Yeah, man. I mean, this was, this is really fun. Um, you know, we, we talk about a lot of this stuff, this stuff, uh, you know, most, most days or most weeks. Um, but you know, to really sit down and hash it out for, for, I think an hour and a half was, uh, was really fun. Um, and just in terms of where you can find me, um, just on, on Twitter at Dylan LeClaire, uh, underscore, uh, I did a deep dive with, with Bitcoin magazine. And so we'll be rolling out on Substack. I don't know when you're dropping this today or, or whatever. It doesn't, it, you know, uh, it doesn't matter, but um, I think we'll be rolling out that on Substack with with uh, free and, and, and paid tiers, and we do that daily. So um, if you want to see some of that, just hit me up. My DMs are open. Um, I try to get to most of them. Uh, I don't get to most of them. <laughs> I don't get to all of them, but uh, ping me again. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, this is really fun. Um, and I'd love to, I, I don't know if we're going to start a podcast, but I'd love to, ha you know, just do another one of these chats with you, maybe at a, a BM. Yeah, totally. Well, take it easy, Dylan, and uh, thanks for coming on. Hopefully we can get you back on in, uh, in another couple months, man. Appreciate you, bro. See ya.